Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Three years ago, or maybe a lifetime ago, uh, back in 2019, Jeff Kossoff's book, The 26 Words That Created the Internet, was published, uh, which is, to this day, uh, the most comprehensive and thoughtful history of Section 230. Of course, when it was initially published, Section 230 was mostly considered a wonky, somewhat academic topic that most people had no idea about. I know that Tech Dirt listeners are probably not in that crew, but that's that's really where, where it was. Uh, and of course, uh, since then, uh, basically top politicians on both sides of the aisle declare that the law should be eliminated. And then there have been tons of bills uh, to modify or completely eliminate Section 230, not to mention hundreds, if not not thousands of confused news articles and opinion pieces, all very, very wrong about Section 230 for the most part and about what it does and why it's important. Uh, suddenly everyone was talking about Section 230, though in a very confused manner, uh, reinforcing the idea that they all should have read Jeff's book. Now, Jeff is back with a new book, The United States of Anonymous, uh, all about the First Amendment and the right to anonymous speech. So I fully expect that within a few months we'll be seeing a similarly confused mass movement of politicians on both sides of the aisle, along with tons of news articles and opinion pieces confused about the right to anonymous speech and demanding that we get rid of it. And indeed, we are already seeing some evidence of that happening. So, uh, Jeff, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. And uh, why do you keep writing books uh, about topics that that then lead to the destruction of everything good? Yeah, it's funny that the book actually came out this week. It actually started shipping. And fortunately, this is not in the US yet, but uh, the UK just uh, announced a bill that would basically <laughs> require social media companies to uh, block any unverified accounts uh, out of the fear of anonymous trolls. So I, I, I think we're right on schedule. <laughs> I need you to stop that. <laughs> um, so, so, so let's talk about anonymity uh, and, and, you know, where, where, you know, I guess, why is this such an important topic right now? Yeah, so it really always has been important, uh, really. And I mean, my my book actually begins in England with the letters of mm -hmm. Junius and uh, traces anonymity from there all the way through modern debates and everything in between. Uh, it, it's particularly important, as you were talking about with the Section 230 debate, because I, I think that what we've started to see over the past year is that some people realize that some of their Section 230 arguments aren't necessarily fully coherent, um, <laughs> but then the next the, the next thing they look to is, well, let's go after these anonymous people because they're the really bad ones. Um, and, and so if we can't go after Section 230, let's at least 
figure out a way to go after the individuals who who post things, which I'm all for going after people who do bad things online. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, anonymity has become a proxy for people who do bad things online when uh, surely there are people who do things uh, badly anonymously, but there also are people who do some pretty horrific things (laughs) with their real names. uh, And it just all sort of gets lumped into one one thing and that that that's really uh where a lot of the debate is heading unfortunately yeah i mean the, the thing that that has surprised me about this and and you know we've been arguing on tech turd in favor of of anonymity for you know going way back um and, and the thing that that amazes me is how willing people are to immediately jump to the idea that anonymity is the problem um and you know sort of willing to skip over the point that you made, which is that tons of people do bad things in, in their real name. Um, and the fact that that there are, are also a lot of examples of anonymous speech being very, very helpful, especially for more marginalized people and, and people who where it would be dangerous for them to attach their, their names to their ideas. Um, and and yet, for some reason, that that never seems to get through to people. Why is it that people immediately jump to to anonymity as as the problem? And and why does that? Why why do you think that that notion sticks? So I I think because there are some cases where people do things badly anonymously, and that gets attention. Uh, even in the non internet context, uh, one I, I devote a chapter in the book to anti-mask laws, and this has nothing to do with the current right. debates. Uh, these are laws that were enacted primarily in the early 1900s uh, out, out of concern that there were state and local ordinances uh, out of concern of uh, Ku Klux Klan uh, members that would obviously wear masks. And these laws would basically say to varying degrees that you can't conceal your face for certain purposes in public. And uh, they're started, and they actually had a resurgence of enforcement in the 1990s as the Ku Klux Klan started to uh, really regroup throughout the Midwest and the South and even in the Northeast. And you started to see a lot of challenges to these laws. And some of the uh, courts struck them down on First Amendment grounds and said, you know, there's a right to be anonymous. Um, but other others were reluctant to do so. And uh, one, one of the things that really hit home for me was there was a case in the 1990s uh, involving New York's anti-mask law. And uh, the Ku Klux Klan wanted to rally in Manhattan. And uh, the NYPD under Rudy Giuliani at the time told them, uh, we don't want you here and you can't. we have an anti-mask law and we're not going to allow you to uh, to have your event with masks and they challenged it in court. So I was able to get all the records from the court case and I was reading through it. It's a very interesting transcript of the hearing. Uh, but I was looking through the briefs and I saw that the National Action Network, which is Al Sharpton's group, filed an amicus brief. And I mean, I immediately thought, well, they're probably supporting the city because Al Sharpton doesn't want the Ku Klux Klan coming to New York, but he actually filed the brief in support of the Ku Klux Klan uh, and said, you know, we despise everything they stand for, but this is such a fundamental right to speak anonymously. And if Rudy Giuliani is able to silence them, uh, he's going to come and try to silence us next. And I found that to be a really intellectually honest and I would assume probably not a very 
easy position <laughs> to have taken at the time. But I think that really shows some of the value and anonymity. I mean, throughout the history of the United States has really uh, protected groups that otherwise wouldn't have a voice. So, I mean, I'm a white male tenured professor, so I can go online and speak in my real name and that's fine. But uh, I, I look at um, Glassdoor, which I think actually does one of the best jobs currently of fighting for the anonymity of their users. And they get subpoenas all the time from companies that just are really thin skinned and don't like it when their employees are criticizing them. And I, I think that's a real power dynamic because these employees clearly would not have be, be able to say, you know, our CEO is mismanaging the company with their real names attached to it. So, I mean, that that's and, and that's really a lot of what we've seen in the, the online debate. But even before the Internet, I mean, the modern First Amendment right to anonymity came from the NAACP. Uh, and that was cases in the 1950s when Southern officials uh, did not like the NAACP's post-Brown versus Board of Education work on integrating school systems and started to use these really bogus legal rationales to force the NAACP to disclose their member names. And for obvious reasons, uh, the NAACP in the South, uh, th their members would face a lot of retaliation if this was disclosed. And the Supreme Court repeatedly held that there's this right to anonymous association. Uh, and, and I mean, the, the irony, of course, is that, I mean, for decades later, the Ku Klux Klan would use this anon right. right to anonymity that the NAACP established. So, I mean, there's a lot of competing values, but I think the core principles have really stayed the same. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that certainly comes up when when you defend anonymity and sort of the right to anonymity is people say, well, that that lets people get away without, you know, uh, you know, without being responsible for stuff. But but, you know, the the courts have have tried at least to, to balance that. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, they're, they're, the courts have set for the online context, if you're going to subpoena a John Doe uh, defendant who who's posted something anonymously, um, the courts have set a very high standard, but it's not insurmountable. Uh, there there are cases where, uh, and basically what the courts say, and it varies by jurisdiction, but essentially you have to have a very strong claim and you have to fulfill some other procedural requirements. Um, and, and I think the balance is pretty pretty much correct in because there, there have been cases where uh, there's a case uh, that I write about in the book, the auto admit case from mm -hmm. 2007, 2008, where two law students really had this really horrific uh, campaign uh, uh, of defamation against them. I mean, it was clearly defamatory. They're, I, I'm, I don't use that phrase very lightly, <laughs> but th this was. Right. And um, the problem they had was that AutoAdmit uh, made a policy of not logging its IP addresses, which created, but they had, they had good pro bono counsel who was able to get some of the IP addresses, um, but one of the defendants challenged it in court and uh, and said, I have a First Amendment right to anonymity. And the judge said, no, not so fast. You, you actually don't because this is a very strong claim that they have. Um, but what what the standard does is it allows it allows people to avoid having their information subpoenaed if um, if they're just 
criticizing their boss. Uh, and the right. and, and I mean, what we saw, especially in the uh, late 1990s before the standard developed, and it really it was primarily on Yahoo. Yahoo used to have Yahoo Finance, and this is where almost all of the battles took place, uh, was you, you would have employees go onto Yahoo Finance, onto the bulletin board for their company, and talk about how their management was incompetent. Um, and the company would then file really, th these were really bogus lawsuits that either said this was disclosing trade secrets or they were defaming us and they were so mm -hmm. weak. Uh, but Yahoo would uh, just comply with the subpoena without even notifying the posters. And oftentimes the Yahoo would have the email address so they wouldn't even need to do a second round of subpoenas. But um, gradually Yahoo changed its policies and started providing notice and an opportunity to challenge. And then the courts started. And then once people were able to move to quash the subpoenas, the courts developed these precedents. So it, it's, um, it, it, I, I think overall, I, the courts have struck the right balance in, in these subpoena cases. Yeah. Have you, this is getting a little bit away from the, from the book itself, but have you been following, there's the case going on right now uh, with uh, where Twitter was trying to quash a subpoena for the identity of, of a, a, a user there that was, it's the call me money bags case. I don't know if you've followed it. At I, all, I so. have. Um, and I, I actually, in the book, I, I don't write about this case, but right. uh, what one of the problems that we have, and this is actually a bigger problem with the, the with the subpoena standard, um, the what I was talking about is just sort of the traditional John Doe defamation right. or trade secrets case. Um, but what we've also had develop in parallel has been a pretty low standard for copyright related subpoenas. Right. And I don't address that case. Um, what I, I address first, the recording industry's um, early 2000s subpoenas, first under the DMCA and then just John Doe subpoenas right. where... Um, they got the courts to set a standard that's not as protective, and um, you and I think the the idea is that this is about that there's limited First Amendment value in peer to peer file sharing. I, I argue against that. Uh, I think there is both expressive value and there's also a value in receiving information. That, uh, right. but but what I find more concerning are is how that's been used over the past decade, which is primarily in pornography cases, legal pornography cases, um, where one judge has likened it to an extortion scheme. Uh, another judge right. um, used even uh, harsher language. Um, and I, I think that what we're seeing is that the, these we're, we're starting to see because the copyright standard is much lower in terms of protection, we're starting to see, and we've seen it in a few cases over the years, that um, the the court, if a plaintiff can couch it as copyright in some right. way, that they can have an easier time uh, getting the information. And I, I think that that's something the courts have to fix, and I argue for that. In the book, I think the, the other area where it's a problem is cr the criminal and grand jury context. Um, we don't have many published opinions just because there's usually not an opportunity to challenge a grand jury subpoena, but we have had a few and the courts have applied very low standards, including the Ninth Circuit in particular in a case involving Glassdoor really 
I think botched it. Um, and, and so, so I think that we need to try to get all of the different types of unmasking to up to the level that we have for defamation cases. Yeah. I, and I think that's important. I mean, there is this whole element of on the, on the copyright side, at least, you know, copyright is this weird, weird area of law where the first amendment just seems to get ignored repeatedly <laughs> or, or you sort of wave it off with, well, fair use fixes things or something, but it's, it's, it's never, it's, it's, uh, I think it's dangerous, but I think, I think there is a really good point, which, which you raise certainly with the, the sort of, um, the copyright trolling cases where they've, they've abused this sort of subpoena power to, to, and, and the, you know, at least in that case, the courts have sort of recognized like how far it's been taken. But this nature of, you know, if you open up the door to, um, you know, to, to identifying users, you know, people rush in to abuse it, you know, over and over again. And I think, you know, I think there's a lot of history there um, that, that, that shows that. Um, on the, you know, getting deeper into the, the, online anonymity space, which is, you know, obviously what most of the discussion is about, though the book obviously goes goes deeper into the history pre-online. You know, one of the things that amazes me is, you know, in these, you know, whether there are bills or the proposal in the UK or elsewhere to say, you know, um, sites need to know who, who people are, you know, Facebook is often pointed to as one of the problems, and yet Facebook already has you know, at least on the books, a real names policy in that, you know, you're supposed to use your real name on Facebook and they will, you know, kick people off or, or shut down accounts if, if people don't. And yet people still point to them as being one of the problems for anonymous speech. Do you have any sense of how to square those two things? Yeah. So I, I think Facebook's a good example of why I think companies at least have to think very carefully before imposing a real name policy. Uh, I, I mean, Facebook has a real name policy, but it's also not very effectively enforced. Uh, sure. So it's kind of the worst of both both worlds where people who might have, have really good reasons to be you use a pseudonym, but also want to play by the rules are going to... Uh, Perhaps just not use Facebook or um, or use uh, a not communicate as much on Facebook. But people who want to really misuse the system will just lie and see how long right. they can get get away with it. Um, so, so I I think that I, I mean I I think one one argument might be well then just make everyone show a driver's license or something. And I mean that would. <laughs> right. That, that might cut down on impersonation, but that also would exclude the services from a whole lot of people. And I don't know yeah. if we want to do that. But I mean, I, I think that um, at least what the studies have shown, and I, I wish there were more studies, but there, there are studies out there that show that, you know, there, there, there was one good analysis of a German petition site from about 2016, 2017 which actually looked at both the anonymous and real name comments because there were, there were the options. And they actually found the most aggressive comments were posted under their real names. Um, right. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's, it's an option. And I mean, Facebook and any platform is free to do whatever they want. Um, I, I think that um, what you see, especially uh, th there's been some research, uh, for example, for the trans community and how Twitter and Reddit have been much more welcoming places because they don't 
have the same policies as Facebook does. And I feel like um, those groups don't necessarily get considered as much when you're thinking, well, let's just force everyone to have what Facebook's policies are. Right. And I know that, um, you know, when when Google had launched their <laughs> their attempt at a Facebook killer uh, and, and had initially used a real names policy, that there was there like there were a lot of problems that were associated with that, especially among the trans community, that there, there were a lot of issues that were exposed on that. And it seemed obvious that that, you know, in that case, at least Google hadn't really thought through this stuff Um and, you know, it's one of these things that I think similar to a lot of the Section 230 debate is that people don't really think through what the actual implications are, especially for people who are not like themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's, it's, you know, it's easy to say like, well, I have nothing to hide. So, you know, I'm fine putting stuff under my own name. Um, but for a lot of people, that's that's not the case. And yet, um, you know, I, I think hopefully today more companies are at least being being somewhat thoughtful about it, but it doesn't always seem that way. Yeah, yeah, no, I de- definitely. I, I I think that um, I I do think Twitter though they I mean they've really had a long standing dialogue about yeah. about this and I, I and they've gotten a good amount of criticism, uh, particularly after the twenty sixteen election. Uh, but as I point out in the book, uh, it's not like Facebook uh, would. Right. Had its hands clean in 2016, so I, I, I think that uh, a real name policy is not a panacea for these problems. Yeah. Well, what do you think? That, so the the middle ground that I've seen some people suggest, and there have been a few bills sort of proposing this kind of thing, both in the U.S. and and elsewhere, is not necessarily um, a real names policy that requires people to post information under the real names, but one in which they need to register under the real name so that the service provider actually does have that information, whether or not that information is public. And so some people argue that that's like the appropriate compromise so that if you, they do, if, if, you know, uh, a lawsuit or, or the government needs to determine who the person is, that there is a, uh, there is a mechanism to do that as opposed to someone being able to post fully anonymously. I mean, I'll say that's what China does. And, um, and, and I, I, don't, I, I think in China, there is not much difference between having right. to register your identity for social media with the government. And, and they, they say, oh, we don't have a real name policy. We just require you to register with the government. And I'm thinking, well, right. that I, I don't see any difference in the chilling effect on speech that that would have. Um, I mean, in the United States, there might be a little more protection. But I mean, I, I think that still if people were required to register with the service provider whose records could then be accessed by the government or litigants, um, at least for me, I, I don't see that as anywhere close to a middle ground. I, I, th- I think that might be incrementally better, but I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't see it as much, much different. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I think it gets back to the point that that we were talking about just a little while ago, which is that as soon as you open up that door, it, it becomes abused, right? And so if that information is out there and is is accessible in some way, people are going to look to abuse it. And you can hope that, that companies will have good lawyers and be able to push back on it. But the reality is that, you know, that's a lot you know, that, that costs a lot and, and takes a lot of effort. And there are plenty of companies that won't even bother to go through that. Um, and we'll do what, what Yahoo did in the early days, which is basically be like, okay, well, we have the information, we might as well hand it over. Uh, and so, 
you know, it, it, I think that is a key point that people seem to miss over and over again is how widely this kind of thing will be abused, um, you know, really to suppress speech. Mm. Yeah. And I, w- one thing that I conclude the book with is um, that because it, even when it's not required, a lot of private companies, including companies we don't know about, data brokers, have vast troves of identifying information about us. And right. They're largely unregulated. I mean, I, I would not consider the CCPA to actually be a regulation that effectively <laughs> addresses this. Um, and I, I, I'm worried that the anonymity values that the First Amendment protects, uh, d- despite what pretty much every commentator says about social media, the First Amendment applies to the government, not to social media, <laughs> or not right. to company, private companies in general. So, um, I, I worry that without privacy laws that factor in anonymity, uh, effective privacy laws, that uh, many a lot of the anonymity that the First Amendment protects uh, might eventually disappear just because so much ide- geolocation information, facial recognition data... Right. Is just so unregulated right now, and um, the I mean, I, I think maybe it's moderately helpful to say let's give people the ability to ask to delete their data. But I mean, I don't know what data brokers have my data, and uh, <laughs> I, I work in this field, and I wouldn't even know who to contact to get <laughs> it deleted. So I don't know how. I, I mean, I, I think some of the laws that address uh, the facial recognition issue in Clearview. I think the the local ordinances that just say, "Hey, police, you can't do this." Uh, you, I, I right. think that's a better way to go about protecting anonymity through privacy laws. Yeah, and, and I mean, my next question was going to be about privacy laws, and, and one of the the the, the sort of you know, ironies. I don't know if it's irony that 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 I see in all of this is that you know a lot of the people it seems like a lot of the same people who are complaining about anonymous speech online and saying like, we have to get rid of anonymous speech are also the people who are complaining about, about how the social networks uh, treat private data. Um, and again, I mean, you're right. You, you pointed to the data brokers, which I always think are a much more serious problem than any of the social network providers. Um, but it strikes me that they don't necessarily realize like that, that some of their views are, are in conflict with each other, where they're saying like, you know, anonymity and anonymous speech is bad, but also we need better privacy laws. And those two things, you know, uh, don't necessarily fit right unless the privacy laws take into account the right to an- anonymity. Um, and it doesn't feel like, you know, any of the serious privacy law proposals right now really do take that into account well or am i missing something no they don't and i I mean i i think some of some of the state laws they at least attempt to because they um at least some of them the virginia law uh Mm -hmm. to a lesser extent the california law have have i guess incentives you would say to either anonymize or pseudonymize the data the problem is that they're not they, they just they don't really effectively do that because the, the way that they incentivize anonymity, you could still link that data to someone's identity. Right. I think we, we need to have much sharper requirements. Uh, I mean, like, for example, my I'm the only one in my house who also works at the Naval Academy. So if you have geolocation <laughs> data, even in my neighborhood, I'm the only one. So 
right. if you have geolocate a geolocation set, which right now is pretty freely traded, you could see that I you you could pretty easily identify me. Uh, I mean, there's been research going back. I mean, to Latanya Sweeney's research from 2000 in Massachusetts that show how easily identifiable people are through purportedly anonymized data sets. So I think the laws need to, and, and there's ways to make the data fuzzier. And I think we need to start really grappling with that. Um, but but I, so, so I think it's nice that the laws at least say, you know, you could anonymize data to avoid some of the requirements, but I think they need to be much better at defining what it means to anonymize the data. Yeah, I think, I, I, yeah. I mean, all of this stuff is a challenge. And again, like, you know, th this theme I keep going back to in a variety of discussions lately is how these things play together, you know, and they all impact each other. And yet um, it often feels like a lot of the, you know, on the regulatory side that people don't realize like how some of these laws impact the other things that they're talking about. So you have things like, you know, free speech and anonymity and privacy and also competition. Um, and like they'll come up with a, with a regulation that sort of narrowly attempts to target one area without realizing how that will spill over into these other areas um, that they also, you know, claim to be concerned about. And I'm not sure how to deal with that. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, I, I have this fear, like, so there's this part of me that says like, um, you know, if you're going to do this, you have to have a comprehensive view of everything. But then I have this fear that that means somebody is going to write a comprehensive <laughs> bill to try and fix everything. And I, I have tremendous fear of what that would look like. Um, yeah. yeah. I, and I mean, I think a lot of it really, when you're talking, I, I like to figure out what the exact issues are that people have with anonymity. And I mean, the way that I deal with it in the book is I look for really the worst possible use of anonymity. And right. I spent a whole chapter on it. And it was actually a case um, that where the primary victim, there were many victims, was a client of Carrie Goldberg's, uh, eventually mm -hmm. a client of hers. Um, but it was a harassment that went on for a year um, where there was a woman who was in her 20s and she lived in a house with a few other people in their 20s, just sort of a Craigslist type um, housing roommate situation. Uh, a guy who lived in the house for about a month, uh, who was a computer, he had been a computer science student, so he knew a lot about computers. He, um, they, they got into a conflict and he moved out, um, but he launched a harassment and cyber stalking campaign involving her, all these other people, because she had left her laptop open. So he got her online accounts and mm. he sent um, intimate photos of her along with diary entries, not only to her coworkers, but to her parents' coworkers. He called bomb threats in to a hundred, more than a hundred bomb threats. I mean, it was the, and it went on for like a year. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I mean, it devastated a community, all of the, I mean, the, it, it, it was one of the worst sort of internet related cases that I've ever read of. And what really struck me was, I, I, and he did this all using, he had used, he proxied VPNs and used right. horror. Um, but he, he also had some missteps in terms of log, which a lot of people do, where he logged into two different accounts on the same VPN and VPNs do often keep logs. So right. but the problem was, and, and I mean, she, he wasn't fully anonymous in that she 
she she knew, knew. That it was him. Right. But the she kept going to the police at the local police and they couldn't help her because I mean I mean it was clear they did not have the expertise to to help her. This one police officer really wanted to help her and started taking computer classes to try to help. But the reason why she was able to finally the the uh, person was caught and um, he ended up pleading guilty and sentenced to more than 17 years in prison, which is a lot for a cyber crime, yeah. um, was because she was able to get a federal jurisdictional hook because part of his campaign involved sending child pornography um, mm. and also the bomb threat. So that got the FBI involved in DOJ. But what really struck me about that case was that if those elements weren't there and if all the other harassment, which was devastating, had happened, it very well could not have been a federal case, in which case there wouldn't have been the resources for this. And it really it really struck home for me how we our law enforcement does not really treat uh these online harms with the same level of concern as it does for offline. And right. it doesn't have the same investment in, in specialized law enforcement. I mean, we, FBI is great, but I mean, they're not going to be able to deal with everything. And so, so I feel like that's one aspect where, I mean, yeah, there's some really bad anonymous stuff, but even this guy who had a computer science degree and knew, knew how to use technology better than most people he did have leave enough of a trail to identify him as many people do, right. uh, but it just took so long. And by the time he was caught, so much harm had been done. So I, I think that really um, prioritizing online harms more in law enforcement is really one step for this. Yeah. And, and it's funny how often that, that seems to be the the real underlying issue in a lot of these things like even getting beyond just the, the anonymity question is is law enforcement and and whether or not they understand what's actually happening and whether or not they're they're willing to to enforce the laws that they're supposed to enforce yeah. um you know we're, we're seeing that now with with you know the earn it act also i think you know which which is a section 230 touching bill uh and also gets into potentially encryption issues and, and we just did a podcast on it and the thing that that came up in that discussion was like you know if you look through all of the language and all of the complaints the real issue seems to be that the justice department doesn't seem to be doing much <laughs> and so and now we're suddenly trying to blame the the companies for it um and so it, it's interesting that that this is sort of a parallel issue where it feels like once again you know law enforcement whether it's that they don't understand computers enough or that they're just not willing to to focus on these particular types of issues um that maybe that is the underlying issue as opposed to like um you know oh you know we let people speak anonymously online is the problem um, so I, I guess, you know, where do you think, do you think that, um, in, in, you know, in the U S at least we have the first amendment and sort of some pretty clear protections for, for anonymity, but there are attempts to, to chip away at it. Do you think that any of those actually do have a chance? Yeah, I, I think they would face, uh, a pretty uphill battle from uh, I, I I can't predict the legislative side anymore. Sure. I've given up on that. But in terms of 
legal challenges. I mean, I, I think depending on what it is exactly, I mean, I, we, we've had some attempts at real name law requirements in various contexts for the past few decades, um, either saying you need to provide a credit card to use an online service and those get struck down pretty easily. Um, I'd say what's probably more um, telling would be, I guess it was close to a decade ago, uh, California had a law that uh, required uh, registered sex offenders to provide all of their online account identifiers right. to law enforcement and uh, that it could, there were certain circumstances where that could be made public. And the Ninth Circuit struck that down as a First Amendment violation. So I think that, and I mean, I, I think that in that case, when you have a group, a more narrowly tailored group, such as registered sex offenders, if that's right. not going to pass constitutional muster, I don't know how uh, you're going to be able to get a more generalized real name requirement uh, to survive a First Amendment challenge. Do, 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 for the most part, I mean, you, you talked about that example and, and lots of others, but like, do you feel that, that judges recognize this, the, the right to anonymity or, or is there some confusion there as well? Well, it's kind of weird because uh, that I think judges generally do, um, but it's not an easy partisan divide. So mm. on the Supreme Court currently, the justice who has written most strongly in favor of anonymous speech is Justice Thomas. Uh, right. he, he's agreed with the liberal justices in a few cases where they've struck down different requirements uh, to disclose names, but he um, has actually written separately to say, you guys aren't going far enough. Um, they, they set up this weird standard called exacting scrutiny, which is just something that I guess you could do when you're a Supreme Court justice. Uh, and he says, no, it actually has to apply strict scrutiny. And uh, there's a case kind of the the foundational anonymous speech case is a case called McIntyre versus Ohio Elections Commission, which involved an Ohio elections rule that said if you distribute campaign literature, you have to put your name on it. Um, and this was challenged and the Supreme Court struck it down, but uh, they struck it down saying, you know, we have a long history of anonymous speech going back to the Federalist Papers. And Thomas wrote separately to say, I agree, but it's not about whether we've long used anonymity. Uh, and he gave what I think is actually a pretty remarkable historical analysis. He said, you know, he's an original originalist, so all he cares about is what freedom of speech and of the press meant when the constitution was adopted. Uh, so he looked at that time, what was the press like and what was speech like? And he said, you know, it was overwhelmingly pseudonymous. Uh, so right. that's why I'm going to protect it. Um, so he, and I mean, actually his main opponent uh, in that case and in other anonymous speech cases was Justice Scalia. Uh, also an originalist. And he just said, this is nonsense. The constitution says nothing about anonymity. Um, <laughs> but but I, I think that there's probably still at least a majority on the Supreme Court that uh, would protect within reason anonymous speech. Justice Ginsburg, actually, she had, she always, she voted in favor of protecting anonymity, but she would write mm -hmm. separately to say, you know, there are some cases down the road where we might actually have to regulate anonymity. So it's difficult to predict, but I think 
we're still probably there depending on what the what the regulation is. Now, the one area where it's harder to where Justice Thomas still favors protecting anonymity and more justices don't is the campaign finance realm, right. uh, where he he is pretty much alone <laughs> in, in saying <laughs> that there is a right to that basically campaign finance disclosure requirements also are protected by the right to anonymous speech. Right. Um, yeah, well, there's 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 a lot. Uh, I mean, it, it's such an important topic and it's another one that people don't don't seem to understand nearly nearly enough. Um, so it's it's good that, that your book is uh, getting tossed out just just as everyone is is, is interested in this again, uh, though, hopefully it doesn't doesn't lead to the same sort of uh, situation with 230 where, where hopefully your book is not obsolete. <laughs> hopefully. Uh, do you have plans to destroy anything else that's good about, about the free speech online? Well, I'm currently writing a book about why the First Amendment protects lies. So there we go. Uh, <laughs> look, look for uh, in the next few years for the First Amendment just to entirely go out the window. There we go. Uh, wonderful. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, uh, Jeff, thanks again for, for taking the time and obviously for writing the book. The book is called The United States of Anonymous and uh, is, as with uh, your 230 book, an excellent read and, and very worth uh, checking out. And I'm sure that people who listen to this podcast will enjoy it. So uh, thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much. And thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll be back next week. To grab a shovel and pick up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and pick up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.